Welcome to the I Now Pronounce You Divorced podcast, where we have three award-winning family law attorneys dive into intriguing topics like divorce, military divorce, custody and visitation, trust and estate planning, and all things family law. Join us as we provide a comprehensive viewpoint through the eyes of our experts and guests aiming to educate and soothe our listeners. Get ready to tune in because I Now Pronounce You Divorced starts right now. Fine. It, that's, you know, I love the idea of using the, the credit applications. That, that's one of my favorite tools because, you know, we, we all know that on some forms we try to reduce, people will try to reduce the amount of income they have while on other documents, they try to increase the amount of income they have. And especially where somebody is not a classic W-2 employee, right? A W-2 employee is somebody that goes to work every day. They, they collect a paycheck. They get a W-2 tax form at the end of the year. If they're a 1099 employee where they're a contract employee or a K-1 employee where they have an ownership interest in a business, those credit applications become so imperative mm -hmm. uh, to try to prove income. One of the things I advise my clients, because you know we do want to move fast on the PL motion, and, and some practitioners, some, some I'm not going to say practitioners, but some opposing parties will drag their feet on providing discovery, is to go get what you think you can get. Right, get bank account statements where the the paychecks are deposited into. Get last year's tax filings if you have access to that. Something that would get us to within a stone's throw of an accurate number, and then we can go from there. Um, because I I know there's so many situations where we we fight. You know, Dan, you were talking about having to document uh, going to court. We had somebody in our Richmond office last week get a very sizable attorney's fees award because they were able to show, look how hard I had to try to get into court. The other side refused to cooperate. I finally had to go, you know, kind of meanly request a court date without the other side cooperating. And the judge awarded attorney's fees uh, to us because it, it was so, so bad. But Rebecca, how do you continue to, to pay for litigation when the other side's dragging their feet, you have limited resources and, you know, you don't have this unlimited amount of money. What's your advice to people on how to continue to pay for litigation? Sure. So that's something to address right away in your temporary motion. So, of course, support is going to help um, with the ongoing monthly expenses. But where attorney's fees are going to be, you know, incurred significantly and, and up and down over time, you don't always know how much. Um, in Virginia, you're able to ask for kind of a preliminary attorney's fees award in, in a lump sum. So basically, we want everybody to be on equal footing. We want everybody to have access to representation. And so if one party makes all or the majority of the income, the other side will be entitled to get some sort of lump sum of attorney's fees at the beginning of the case in order to maintain representation, in order to maintain their lawsuit. And so you can see awards that are you know, $5,000, $10,000, something like that, just upfront to put towards the attorney's fees. Another way to address it is to have funds get held by the attorney in escrow that can then later be used um, against the, the attorney's fees that are incurred in the case. So if you have a situation where there's been a sale of a residence, um, if there's been a distribution from a certain account, um, maybe a retirement account or something like that, you can have that held in your attorney's escrow account until the court makes a final order for who's entitled to what and basically have the attorney collect their fees against that that particular asset. Um, I'd say most attorneys are going to prefer the, the former rather than the latter, right? Of course. 
um, want to make sure that that they're going to be compensated for their time and effort and everything in the case um, up front. But that's one way to potentially deal with it. We do see a number of clients that are relying on friends or family members for support. We've even seen people go set up things like a GoFundMe account where they're just asking you know, the world to contribute to their attorney's fees. That's not necessarily something that we recommend because you're putting a lot of information out there that you may not necessarily want to share with the world. Um, but definitely having friends or family members that, that help or will do a personal loan or something like that, that can be a means of, of getting you into court where you can now get the financial relief um, and put you in a much better position in the long term. You brought up in, in talking about that, you know, the, the, you know, large sums of money, like a sale of a house or the distribution of a retirement account. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes it gets very frustrating in divorce situations because everything is is somewhat put on on pause, and because a lot of things are jointly titled, so the parties won't, aren't cooperating while they're going through a divorce to sign off on jointly titled things. Dan, how do we handle, especially when we are representing the lower earning spouse or the stay-at-home spouse, when one spouse has control of all the assets, all the assets are singularly titled into that uh, higher earning spouse's name. What do you do when that higher earning spouse starts trying to dissipate assets? That's a great question. And it, it happens. And they think because it's in their name that they have the control over me and they have the right to sell it, to encumber it, to give it away, to destroy it. And in most jurisdictions, I feel comfortable saying, but I'll definitely, I know the ones that I'm licensed in, the act of filing preserves everything. So you have to either have by agreement of the parties or by order of the court to dispose of any any type of asset, whether it's even marital or separate, you need to have that agreement because those safeguards are automatically put in place. But even a step further in jurisdictions where I, I practice in, it's the contemplation of filing for divorce comes into play. So if you're thinking, okay, I'm going to file for divorce tomorrow in a month, but now I'm going to start getting my ducks in a row, which is more on the dubious nature of I'm going to hide money. I'm going to give it away or, you know, oh, you can have this. Uh, I had a case where the other side gave away a, I think it was like a $50,000 Harley to their buddy for like a dollar thinking, oh yeah, that's, that, that's okay. Because I didn't file. So it didn't really matter. And it was my motorcycle. Well, it didn't end up well for that person. So you, you want to make sure that those safeguards are in place. But the, the problem is, even when that happens, your client, if you're representing the lower income client or the client doesn't really have a lot of control, they have no funds. So what do you do? Unfortunately, a lot of the times as lawyers, we just have to continue moving forward in the case, knowing and hoping that as we get in front of a judge, we'll have awards of distributions so our client can either make payments to the firm, or as Rebecca was saying, but at least have money in an escrow account that can be distributed out later. Or we can even have access to certain uh, bank accounts or retirement accounts. I've had cases where the judge made the other side liquidate just because of the uh, activities that that person was engaging in. And it really put my client at a disadvantage, which puts other clients at a disadvantage. Uh, I've also advised clients to get a loan, if, and if they don't qualify, have friends or family loan them money, so then when they can be repaid back later. But when that happens, I also advise them, and this is where, again, the other, we want to make sure that you're talking to an attorney who practices preferably exclusively in domestic relations family law, but in not at least as a good understanding of it, because there's just so many nuances. And 
when you ask someone to go get a loan, you want to make sure that it's documented, right? You want to have that promissory note because then there's that obligation to repay and you can use that as a debt as you move forward in the case. But if not, in my experience, most courts, most judges will consider that a gift and then your client won't get reimbursed for it. And then therefore you're kind of back to, to square one almost. And so you want to make sure that as a last resort, if you have to ask for money, make sure it's documented because then that can be used as a, a marital debt. And, and those are kind of the, the tools and the, and the avenues that I pursue when we have the lower earning income client, as well as when we have situations where the other side isn't really uh, negotiating good faith or, or playing fair. Because at the end of the day, it, it will come out, but it's it may not be towards the end. And that's why it's just so important to try to maintain status quo, but just tying it back into all that discovery that we talked about. That's why we want to make sure that we're doing our due diligence. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the most infrequently used tools that I see in family law, I think we all kind of use them, is the injunction. You know, I, I see most of the motions in all the jurisdictions we practice and usually have some language about the preservation of the marital estate or, you know, non-dissipation of marital assets, which is injunction type language. But sometimes we have to take it a step further and actually file the injunction. You know, I had a case where uh, my client was the lower earning spouse, sort of. But the wife had all these rental homes in her name only, and he was the one managing these rental homes. And when the divorce came time, she knew it was, she was going to put her ducks in a row. She started trying to sell these houses. And the quickest way we could get into court was a classic injunction, you know, that it was against the, the public policy for her to be allowed to sell and liquidate these houses while these parties were getting ready to head into divorce because what it was doing was stripping the marital court of its power of equitable distribution stripping the marital court of its power to divide the marital estate. And the other attorney was not happy with this move because it allowed me to get into court in seven days versus having to wait the normal amount of time for a, a PDL or PL motion. And we got in court and the judge agreed, froze the sale of all the properties until the other side and I could come to an agreement, which we did, right? Sell the properties, which the client was okay with, but make sure the money's held in escrow like, like y'all have been talking about. Rebecca, are there any other types of novel approaches or maybe approaches from other areas of law that you use to help preserve the marital estate? Yeah. So one thing that, that we run into sometimes is where another person is titled on a house. So for example, you know, husband and wife go to buy a house, wife has bad credit. So husband has a, a co-signer from his parents or a sibling or somebody like that. Well, when it comes divorce time, he tries to sit back and say, oh, but it's not, it's not marital, right? It's, it's mine and my parents or whatever. Um, and in that case, because it's not purely marital in terms of the title, we can't necessarily deal with everything in the family law case. We may have to separately file what's called a partition um, in order to have the court divide that interest and then kind of incorporate that or, or bring that order back into the family law case and then determine the marital share. So just because it's not titled in one of the party's names doesn't mean they're not entitled to a portion of it. It just means that we might have to use some different methods um, to, to get it adjudicated and, and figure out the value and, and do all of that. Um, that is something that we have run into a couple of times and usually um, we can we can prevent it kind of before something happens. 
Um, but we've definitely seen a number of cases where parties have gone so far as to try and sign over all of their interests right to their parents or do that, you know, sale for one dollar or give a gift or something like that, put it into an LLC. That's not going to shield you from the obligation in a divorce situation. Um, it just means that we might have to use another method to get to it. Exactly. And, you know, you talk, you talk about these weird uh, situations that, that we have uh, with maybe, you know, one, the party's living with one party's parents or, or something like that. Dan, have you ever had a situation where the, the parties were living with somebody's parents and the, the parents a victim, but then invite the other parent back in or something like that? It, it's happened. It, it, you, it's not as common, but it's definitely not an anomaly. And it just, it depends on the situation. There, I've had cases to where uh, both uh, spouses were living with one of the in-laws. And then I've had cases where the in-laws were co-signers. And at the end of the day, the way that we handled it was what was the intent in the very beginning? And that's where depositions come into play. That's where affidavits come into play. Because when you're going through the, the marital process, right? I, I remember doing seminars and saying, when you're going through the, the marital process, you're on the same side of the aisle. But when you're going through a divorce process, you're now on the opposite sides of the aisle. So you, you need to make sure that if you're going to advocate for one thing, it was the same as it was in the very beginning. Because a lot of times things change, but there's nothing in writing or there's been no understanding, then it's hard to argue that, oh, well, since my parents or cousin or whomever co-signed, then they're taking away that marital interest. It's really what was the intent at that time of the co-signing. And then at least in the cases where I've had it, we've been successful in arguing that there was a gift to the marriage. So it, it didn't affect any of the marital rights. But if you have cases to where the the spouses are living with one of the in-laws, well, it, it depends. It, meaning, is there any marital ownership in that house? Usually there's not. They're just living there for either rent for or paying rent. But then the question becomes, well, during the marriage, we haven't charged you in rent, but now I'm going to start charging you rent. So now, oh, I'm going to go and ask for back rent for the past X amount of years. And the courts don't really take kindly to that. So they, in, in those situations, they try to usurp some of the court's ability to, to make determinations, to, to make that equitable distribution, to make those findings. And it's just going back again to what we've been talking about, doing that due diligence, which is discovery, depositions asking the right questions, making sure your client is well-informed and, and knows exactly what it, what is out there. And another thing that could potentially have an effect on distribution of awards is marital misconduct. And in jurisdictions where I'm licensed, that is a factor. On the temporary side, not so much unless there's an affair that can be proven. But overall, we were mentioning kind of climbing that hill and, and asking court to deviate from a potential award. If there is marital misconduct that's discovered after the award is um, given by the court, then the court could deviate because it is a factor the court has to consider. Whether or not the court deviates or not, that's one thing, but it is one of the factors. I know in North Carolina, it is a bar for receiving spouse support if you can prove that the spouse who's asking for maintenance was having an affair that wasn't consented to by the, by the other spouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know in Virginia, it can be a bar. You know, Virginia likes that can language, um, you know, as long as it doesn't leave the the offending spouse destitute. Um, you know, a lot of what we're talking about today is, you know, getting 
your stuff in order and getting to the court quickly. You know, the quicker that you move, the more protected that you're going to be, especially if you are the stay at home parent. However, I know that, you know, in certain situations, like if you're a military spouse, it may be very important to look at what the military guidelines recommend that you get um, versus the state level spousal support guidelines. You know, a lot of the military guidelines are based off a calculation of BAH and family size. And it's not uncommon when I sit down with, with, with the stay at home parent to say, look, and, you know, the, the military spouse is actually following what they need to be following. Say, look, you're actually getting more here than you would if we went to court. However, even in that situation, we still need to go to court and memorialize this in an order. Say, hey, look, court, this is what the military guidelines are. We're asking for the court to put the, just this amount into an order, which the court can do. And then we're asking to set other rights about preservation of the marital estate and things like that in, in, into the order. And I will be 100% honest with you. When I'm practicing, one of my biggest fears is the dissipation of the marital estate especially when I'm representing the stay-at-home spouse, is the other spouse has the ability to cut off the paycheck from the joint account. The other spouse generally has you know, set up these accounts and, and will start dissipating you know, retirement accounts and, and so on and so on. So moving quickly is such an important factor in this. So if you or anybody you know is going through divorce or thinking about divorce, especially a stay-at-home spouse, maybe a spouse homeschools, Give us a call and see the difference that, that somebody that's truly a partner can make for your case and, and for you and your family's future. Thank you for tuning into our podcast. If you found this episode helpful and you want more informational content, please be sure to subscribe and join us on all major social media platforms, including YouTube. Stay connected for more exciting updates and tips.